0: This is Fresh Shed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we take stock of climate education, its past and its future. With me are Christina Kwok and Radhika Iyengar, who have recently co-edited the book, Curriculum and Learning for Climate Action, Toward an SDG 4.7 Roadmap for systems change.
1: Our book actually describes how this transformative process takes place through the various roadmaps that we discuss. So it's not just giving a framework of this transformative education, giving what this radical education really looks like in a theoretical form. We actually give insights from schools, from youth, from community members, and that's how it all started.
0: They argue that Cope 26 has been disappointing in terms of education and climate action, and encourage everyone to focus on local action and change.
2: I certainly think, and I think activists and the folks who are in Glasgow right now are certainly making it well known that this has been a, quite an exclusive COP, um, and that you know the voices of key stakeholders have not been allowed into the actual negotiation spaces and into into key
0: decision-making spaces as well. Christina Kwok is a research director at Unbounded Associates and a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institute. Radhika Iyengar is director of education at the Center for Sustainable Development, Earth Institute, Columbia University. Christina Kwok and Radhika Iyengar, welcome to Fresh Ed.
1: Thanks so much for having us today, Will. Thank you, Will, for having us here. Our pleasure to be
0: here. Uh, Congratulations on your new co edited volume or book. It's really wonderful. Quite large, a lot of contributors, a lot to talk about. In the book, in the edited collection, you argue that a radical transformation of our education systems is needed to catalyze the scope and scale of mindset change, paradigm shifts, and worldview expansion to address the climate crisis. That's a quote from the book. Give us a sense of what that actually looks like?
2: So thanks, Will, for that question. I think where we are coming from with that particular statement is that, you know, the education system has been quite complicit in perpetuating the kinds of values that enable not only the destruction of the planet, but also deeply embedded uh, social inequities uh, between and across different people. And so when we say we want to see the education system begin to radically reorient its very purpose the purpose of education i think what we want to see is that education is not just about teaching knowledge facts but that it is about reshaping how we view ourselves in the world and with each other and this makes education i mean it goes back to the you know the very political nature of education and how we have to recognize that we are being taught to be social beings, citizens of the world, citizens of the planet. And if we are not allowed the opportunity to explore those relationships, those systems, the histories, we cut ourselves short from being able to really transform society.
1: I just want to add to what Christina just said, but also keeping the conversation very realistic and very frank. We've been talking of this transformative education, radical education for a very long time. And what have we seen so far? It's not just a jargon, this is really the time. So our book actually describes how this transformative process takes place through the various roadmaps that we discuss. So, it's not just giving a framework of this transformative education, giving what this radical education really looks like in a theoretical form, we actually give insights from schools, from youth, from community members and that's how it all started our book came about after our discussion online discussion with around 400 uh you know community members came together at cies 2020 when christina and i did this workshop we thought our job will be over in one hour but we continued for four hours because there were so many different voices that we wanted to that were there telling us their stories and they were not education voices so as christina is saying you know this transformative education radical education it needs to be the core of where we want to get at but the voices are not education voices so if you see in our book they are not education specialists or experts or education you know professors They are people from all different scapes, all different parts. Actually our youngest author, was um, this was last year, he was in grade 7. So you can imagine that uh, we are bringing in all different stakeholders to talk about this transformation of what it means to them. And transforming UNESCO's framework, ESD framework and their futuristic framework to allow for this transformation to actually take place in communities and in different parts of the world. Uh, giving different parts, you know, examples from different countries to show what does it really mean. It's not a jargon or it's not a, just a word that just is thrown out. We, uh, Christina and I, really got lucky to get all these insights from all these authors who are actually describing transformation in implementation. So, which is the key for our book. Why is it so
0: important to focus on systems when thinking about this radical transformation rather than, say, individuals?
2: The climate crisis is a systems failure. It reflects a systems failure. It's not an individual that has caused emissions. It is a system that enables certain types of production, certain types of consumption, certain kinds of values to be You know, perpetuated and as a result, changing or addressing that climate crisis requires a systems approach. It's, it's not changing individual behavior alone, but it's changing the food systems, our transportation systems, our energy systems. Which include individuals, but are, are how our individuals are structured together as, as different components of society. And so if we aren't thinking about our education in the same way, if we're thinking about education as merely a project of informing and inculcating in the individual certain knowledge, skills, and attitudes to become great workers in the workforce, and not thinking about how that individual is connected to the very systems that drive our, you know, our current ecological crisis, then We can't leverage, we just perpetuate the education as just being about knowledge and not being about relationships, not being about addressing systems of power. It's shortcuts our whole educational endeavor.
0: One of the things that fascinates me is that the United Nations had this thing called the Decade of Education for Sustainable Development between 2005 and 2014, which presumably would try to work towards some of this radical transformation. Did it work? I mean, with 10 years of, you know, sustained effort and focus on education for sustainable development, did the UN accomplish anything in a sense towards that goal of radical transformation that you're talking about?
1: So with ESD decade, what we agreed on was that we didn't agree on one common definition of what ESD means. And There was this whole confusion between transfer, like you know, environmental education, climate education, ESD, all sorts of definitions going around and there were some people who were saying, no, this is marginalization or this is agenda setting and we are not looking at all the other. So I think we were in debate on the definition of ESD for a long time in education, we are famous for delaying things, just deliberation and you know, all sorts of processes that need to take place. But also we were also in discussion in terms of The pillars of sustainable development, whether we have three pillars, whether we have four pillars, should we add on accountability and governance as one of the pillars. So that continued for some time, just, you know, some kind of existential crisis. But at the same time, I think three things that come to mind. In terms of its uh, ESD decades accomplishment is um, this idea that uh, climate education needs to be or ESD needs to be integrated into science I think that happened quite forcibly there were a lot of science related sustainability related language at least it got integrated into the science component there was a focus on collaboration that the education sector is not doing this alone it has to work with different sectors environment and you know, at the local level, work on collaborations and, you know, other things. So I think that really pushed the agenda. Uh, and then also it set the stage for um, SDG 4.7. So a lot of deliberation had already happened. And I thought that provided the homework for when SDGs were decided for SDG 4.7 and its definition and its overall work. But of course, there's much to be accomplished. There's a lot to be done.
0: SDG 4.7, like when that was adopted in the Sustainable Development Goals, was that a sign of the international community taking issues of climate education, Education for Sustainable Development, serious? Like, like how did you perceive that moment when that happened in 2015?
2: I think we'd like to describe SDG 4.7 as sort of the kitchen sink, right? It's everything that we couldn't fit into a specific goal just sort of all clumped together. And I think that that also is a reflection of kind of the seriousness or perhaps the lack of seriousness around those particular issues. Because I think if we were really serious about those uh, topics, I mean, gender equality, sustainable development, human rights and so on... If we were really serious about that, I think we would have embedded those throughout every single aspect of SDG4, of every aspect of the SDGs, and not just a, you know, a singular subcomponent. And I mean, climate change at the, uh, the target level, you know, not even referenced. I think that that sort of speaks to kind of where the global community was at that point in time. And I think it, yeah, it just reflects sort of the emphasis within the education sector on a very narrow set of goals.
0: I think you're right. It is sort of like the kitchen sink. It's everything is in SDG 4.7. And on the one hand, it is quite amazing to see the global community sort of agree on these huge ideas that are all lumped together, which maybe was a diplomatic reason or who knows why it ended up happening that way. But could you talk a little bit about the measurement of of that target? Like how is SDG 4.7 even... Measured? How do we know, or how does the international community know when it has achieved SDG 4.7?
1: I have a very disappointing answer, Will. We will not know whether we will achieve SDG 4.7 in which country because I think a lot of SDG 4.7 to me is a the language itself is a mix of poetry and mathematics because we have this, you know, beautiful language around all the things that we need to accomplish and then there are some indicators. And just to give you some local examples that are missing, which I feel is really a flaw of uh, nationally aggregate data sets, which we will not be able to get to see where actually SDG 4.7 progress is. For example, in districts in India, we do these, uh, students do these uh, plantation drives, clearly related to climate change, clearly related to SDG 4.7, these indicators are only at the district level and at national level is just a number that is not even reported for SDG 4.7. Another example is that India with these, with the Greta movement, there is a lot of blogging, you know, marches where a lot of youth are there picking up plastic bags, there are a lot of, uh, you know, drives on plastic. but. At the national level, there is no aggregation to this. So, I see a lot of local activism, lot of district level work happening at the district offices planting, you know, millions of trees. Uh, But those indicators that are locally relevant and or may or may not be even nationally relevant, there is no report going to the UN saying that we did this. This is how we measure SDG 4.7. Christina can correct me uh, here. She's done an extensive work on uh, measuring SDG 4.7. I'll let her uh, speak uh, uh, further. But I just wanted to add that I think in a way it is good that we don't have global metrics that measure SDG 4.7. But at the same time, the countries needed to... Adopt or adapt or develop their own locally relevant SDG 4.7 metrics, which I don't see happening. And those, and there are many other, uh, you know, activities in place that are not being measured. So I don't think we will ever be able to know what is the actual progress of SDG 4.7 and what does it mean to accomplish this in each country context. Yeah,
2: I think the challenge is that the current way that SDG 4.7 is set up to be measured is that it's really focused on the extent of integration within curriculum. Um, national policies, teacher training, and that sort of thing. and and that, um, as Radica mentioned, is an extremely low bar for understanding what is the level of progress. There's no indication as to whether or not, you know, again, knowledge transfers into action and what kind of action that might look like, depending on context based on certain kinds of of challenges that communities are facing. And so it becomes really difficult when you're thinking about creating a global uh, indicator of what progress looks like, because it is, as the climate crisis indicates, so contextually specific. And so without some kind of locally specific or context specific indication of, of progress, it'll be very difficult to understand, you know, how efforts are actually changing the status quo.
0: That seems like a real tension in terms of measurement of trying to measure some sort of global target that is shared by all countries and all communities, and then as you're saying, that there's so many local variations of what communities are actually doing that are connected to this global goal. I mean, that tension in measurement, I mean, is is that ever going to be resolved? Or is that something we shouldn't even be trying to do? I, I sort of feel sorry for UNESCO Institute of Statistics. This seems like an impossible endeavor.
2: Well, I think we just have to be very honest about what those indicators are measuring. You know, just recently even worked with Education International to develop a climate change education ambition report card. And so it was very, very clear that the intention of these indicators that we developed was focused on the ambition within policy. And that, you know, in no way does that have an indication as to the implementation or the effectiveness of that climate change education. And so I think maybe maybe that's where we have to go with our global monitoring and accountability mechanisms is, you know, what are we attempting to measure because, you know, definition is an issue still. Understanding the context specificity is also an issue when it comes to measurement. Perhaps one of the conversations we need to have is, you know, maybe it's the ambition that we're trying to measure. And then local contexts, you know, through their more regional measurements of progress, understand more, you know, the kinds of data that can be collected and and measured for for benchmarking and and measuring progress.
1: I just want to add here that one is global and uh, international measurement and the other is state-level measurement. We don't even, so I live in two states One is in New Jersey in the United States and the other one is in Madhya Pradesh in India. Those are my two countries. And I feel that to make these SDGs locally relevant, the states need to have their own, you know, indicators. So that we can say, okay, this is my state. This is where we are heading towards air pollution. This is what my metrics is. There is, so I believe that for United States, there's a new indicator report which SDSN uh, releases every year, this year the report will be released on the 17th uh, of November, Uh, to know about your own state's SDG indicators. To me, I think uh, that is much more relevant because then I can go to my congressmen, my township members and I can say what are we doing for uh, pollution, what are we doing for education and you know again describing and adapting the global frameworks to the state level. I think might be a much more useful action-oriented item than at the end of five years one country says we have been able to accomplish SDGs and here are or not accomplish SDGs, but the community is left out. So action-driven indicators at the sub-national level or even below that, if it is possible by collective action or by state level drives, probably will be a much more you know useful way of contextualizing SDGs and making it more useful in terms of action.
0: You know, I understand and I really do appreciate the focus on that sort of local level on the community level and and having accountability structures set up to hold sort of local elected officials accountable for, you know, specific targets related to, broadly speaking, SDG 4.7. But at the same time, it is probably valuable to think about the role of the state and the way in which states are being held accountable. And so it just sort of begs the question in my mind about, do we know anything about how nation-states Perceive education for sustainable development, like how are nation states or countries even beginning to think about that idea itself is, you know, is there any research on that?
1: Not sure about research, but I think the COP26 has shown that SDG 4.7, at least in terms of the basic things that need to be done climate education integrated into core curriculum focus on values and attitudes uh, and knowledge about ESD those things are coming up more and more as compared to previous years. So at least there is a positive sign that basic things are being covered with, with the COP26 language, though I, I'm yet to see uh, exact language on Sustainable Development Goals or SDG 4.7. It's definitely climate-related activities are integrated into the core curriculum, which is a great start in terms of the process that needs to be followed.
0: And is that different from previous ways of understanding climate education? Like, you know, so seeing climate education as sort of integral to all of the core curriculum rather than, say, just in the sciences or in a particular subject. I mean, is that that fundamentally different in your opinion?
2: Yeah, I think that there has been a sea change when it comes to thinking about how climate education should be implemented. I think perhaps as a a legacy of sort of the ESD movement and kind of it being concentrated within sciences when implemented, that that sort of has translated into how we consider climate education. But I feel like there has certainly within the last two years, at least, um, you know, due to a lot of global advocacy by different organizations to really begin to say, no, if it was just about the facts, we would have solved the climate crisis decades ago. It's not just about the facts. It's not just the science. It has to be integrated across the entire curriculum, across the whole school, right? Organizing principles as a sort of an organizing principle for school operations and and management and so on. So I think that there's certainly been quite a shift in sort of the demand around how climate education should be implemented. And I think in many ways, climate education has usurped sort of ESD as the global focus. And, you know, I think to the efforts of those that have been really trying to push uh, awareness around the climate crisis and the urgency of addressing climate change in particular. But, you know, to kind of go back to what Radhika was saying as well, you know, what I have noticed with COP is that, you know, if we are talking about sort of in the spirit of SDG 4.7 and how that's been taken up by conversations within the education discussions at COP. I think we see the spirit of SDG 4.7 as fragmented as the target itself is. You know, some parties at, at COP, um, you know, are all about the inclusion of gender equality language, gender issues in their policy discussions and the negotiations, but human rights have been struck out you know and this is something because not all parties are are going to agree on a human rights based approach to education or public participation or, or whatever it might be that they're discussing within, within, um, the COP, you know, negotiation rooms. So in some ways, it's great that we have SDG 4.7 because it ensures that those topics are included or at least give advocates a space to say, Hey, these are mentioned as our sort of global, as global goals let's make sure we're talking about it. If they weren't there, we would have no leverage point, right? So in many ways, it's great that we have that framework to say, all right, ACE negotiations, the action for climate empowerment negotiations. We want to see gender issues. We want to see um, human rights. We want to see uh, citizenship. We want to see, you know, civic engagement. We want to see all these different dimensions. And that provides at least some impetus for making the demands. And then it also shows that, You know, there's great discord when it comes to all parties agreeing to these different components. So it certainly highlights the political dimension of um, these topic areas.
0: It is interesting to think that, you know, SDG 4.7, because it includes so many diverse topics, like you said, human rights and gender equality and education for sustainable development and global citizenship education, all these big different topics that probably deserve their own separate target in and of themselves but you could almost see how diplomatically if you put them all together you probably can get enough people to agree on that broad topic but then in the implementation of it states can sort of pick and choose which ones of that those you know laundry lists that they actually want to support and then sort of push aside push to the side any of the other big topics that they for whatever national reason they do not feel comfortable uh, and willing to address. I mean, it's sort of um, it's like a double-edged sword in a way.
2: That's true. And but I think you know the an absence of inclusion would really prevent us from being able to really demand those that the attention to those. Right. I mean, in our book, we have a section that is focused on monitoring and accountability mechanisms. Right. And in that section, it's mostly voices of young people, of students, sort of calling out like, "Here is." what our education looks like. And if we are not really making true to the to SDG 4.7 that calls on these components to be included, like how are we going to make progress on these issues? But the fact that they're there allows us to say, you know, governments, you need to be accountable for these dimensions, right? So I think, um, yeah, you're right, it's a double edged sword, but it allows for the discourse and allows for the the activism to come in.
0: And so thinking about COP, 26 that's taking place in Glasgow. We're, we're speaking on Wednesday, November 10th. So it's been about a week and a half of activities in Glasgow. It ends on Friday. So when listeners listen to this podcast, COP26 will already have been over. But given that sort of context, has the activism and has the conversation of education for sustainable development, climate change education, what have countries and states actually agreed to? has it been meaningful?
1: I think that COP26 just covers the basic essentials and it is running a couple of generations behind. Here we are in our book talking about inclusion, democratization, this whole book is a process of democratization where we are bringing in so many different voices and what did we see at COP that all the Greta's of the world and all the activists were outside and they were not even able to come inside. So are we actually giving them a voice or are we saying that okay you are here just to listen to what we decide on so COP26 gave us a sense of how the education system is currently working we don't give space for students in our class to actively listen engage make those decisions on their own and we have chapters in our book where teachers are saying let's empower the students let's not just be a slave of the curriculum and the examination system that we currently have cop is a replication of what we do in our classrooms so i think this whole idea of um, you know bringing in different voices uh, making sure that there is disruption making sure that we address climate crisis there was this uh, poster that I saw one of the protesters holding at COP on Twitter, which said that if we talk of uh, environment activism uh, or environment action without focusing on climate crisis or without focusing on uh, justice issues, it's like doing gardening. So in the class also we are doing the same, we are tweaking the curriculum, we are adding this there, that there without getting at the crux of why are we in this uh, position, what is happening in the world around us, what are the inequalities, what are the social justice issues, what are the, what is the transformative education that we want to bring in. COP26 agenda so far has not brought in any kind of transformative education. So I hope they'll read our book, the leaders read our book and understand what is meant by transformative education and how these different voices from our book give a sense of how do we actually implement it uh, in reality. I certainly think, and I think activists and
2: the folks who are in Glasgow right now are certainly making it well known that this has been a, quite an exclusive COP um, and that, you know, the voices of key stakeholders have not been allowed into the actual negotiation spaces and into into key decision-making spaces as well. Um, I want to give two examples of things that are coming out of COP that I think, give an indication of where we are right now when it comes to climate education um, and the kind of the gap that we still need to fill. So on Friday, the 5th of November, um, there was a ministerial event that brought together education ministers and environmental ministers together to make statements about the importance of uh, climate action and climate empowerment and, and education and so on. And, um, shortly after that, the, the co-chairs released a statement, uh, kind of a, um, a conclusion statement from the, from the event. And I think on the one hand, the fact that there is a joint statement on this topic, on the topic of climate education is a huge sign of progress. Um, this is, you know, um, um unprecedented that there's actually this level of discussion on education at this event. But where it fell short, is that it was, you know, it it goes back to kind of the roadblocks that we were talking about in our book, that the vision for that is so lackluster. There is nothing radical about it. It's about including um, climate change into the curriculum, yes, but there's nothing about climate justice, looking at the systemic issues, looking at social inequities, looking at unequal dynamics of power, you know, present re- relations of carbon colonialism, like there's no, there's no, nothing systematically radical about it, right? It risks just perpetuating the status quo, but satisfying student demand to have more climate education in the classroom. Okay. So that's one example. The second example is that on the same day, the UK's United Kingdom Secretary of Education um, announced their, uh, their draft uh, sustainability and climate strategy for their education systems, and I took a, a you know a quick glance through that, read kind of what the key points are, what they're calling for, and I was so um, disappointed to read a section in there that essentially said, "We just want the facts, please. We cannot have." teachers inculcating students, radicalizing students around political agendas. And that, to me, just is an indication of the uphill battle we still have to fight here. Because, I mean, yes, include climate change in the curriculum, yes, that's that's the bare minimum, as Radhika just said. It's the bare minimum that we should see. But if we really wanna see the transformative potential of education, we have to get at the systemic issues that are driving the climate crisis, which means we have to bring those issues into the classroom. It is a political endeavor. And I just seeing these, you know, this, this, these two paragraphs elaborating on why teachers should, you know, leave their politics at the door and not discuss political issues and not engage in the critical discussions and enable that civic awareness to be built. Like, I feel like it's, um, again, you know, kind of just teasing us and saying, you know, yeah, we'll give you the climate education, but we're not going to change the status quo. We're not going to achieve systems change. We're not going to achieve just transitions because we're really just talking about achieving, you know, a little bit.
0: That's rather depressing, isn't it? I I mean, is it too late, right? I mean, like if that's where we are with COP26, where, you know, on the one hand, a book like yours is pointing to Totally different, radical transformation of education and showing how it's possible. But then on the other hand, we have this massive international climate conference and you're saying it's baby steps. So, I mean, what? where does that leave us for the future?
1: Future is local will. I think we need to have Mock 26 in every county and bring governments to be accountable do things on our side bring b- demand a lot of accountability from the systems run for board of education sit in their township meetings i think that is that will be more powerful than going to glasgow and then standing on the street and not being able to even you know witness what's going on inside i think that is very empowering uh, disempowering what will be the change maker will be each one of us doing what we can locally by bringing COP26 locally to our own towns. I think that is the hope and I think there are a lot of people who are doing that already in terms of their own agenda, but I think bringing in like a cohesive group of people, maybe you know, have an education person, Have we have all these people in our own communities. So bringing those messages down uh, to our counties and making that a possibility. Uh, I think is the way forward rather than waiting for national level governments to move and government systems and education systems to move. I also want to say that this SDG 4.7, as uh, broad as it is, it is our last hope. I think it is the Noah's Ark that we require to sail through this tumultuous times because if we don't bring in the... Uh, ESD plus the global citizenship education together with all different aspects there is no meaning to the education that we are providing in the schools we are not going to learn science facts and resolve any kind of climate issue as uh, Christina has pointed out many times before so I feel that uh, taking this essence of SDG 4.7 and doing what we can locally with every teacher interaction with every student interaction is our only hope going forward.
2: I mean, I agree wholeheartedly with Radhika. I feel like COP26 has reaffirmed the importance of local climate action and local educational action. It just illustrates that, you know, when it, when you come and you try to bring parties from very different places and spaces, that they're, that this collective action problem really begins to unfold before your eyes, right? But when it comes to the climate crisis, the climate crisis is so incredibly contextualized. Communities feel the impacts, and that's where the action, the most transformative action can happen, just as Radhika was saying. And I think we have to really put our efforts at the local level, allow the, the global politics to still happen because that's that's still absolutely necessary. It unlocks the finances, it unlocks the policy, it unlocks the resources, we need that. But I think with given the urgency, of the climate crisis, the closing window that we have to take action. It's really how do we empower local communities and how do we scale up these, you know, wonderful case studies that we see in our book so that, you know, communities learn from communities and can, you know, take a little lesson from this one, take a little lesson from that one and make something new and really transform their own community based on what they're experiencing with the climate crisis. And I think that's where we got ahead in the next few years.
0: Christina Kwok and Radhika Iyengar, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It really was a pleasure to talk today.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much, Will.
0: Christina Kwok works at Unbounded Associates and the Brookings Institute, and Radhika Iyengar works at the Earth Institute, Columbia University. Their new co-edited book is Curriculum and Learning for Climate Action. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. FreshEd's team includes Sherry Yang, Fatih Akhtas, Obafemian Kunle, Dion Jiang, Annabella Afroboteng, Anya Lin, Phyllis che Mensa and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, the Shoktef Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcastcom donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.